Tonight, we want to continue, and hopefully we'll finish up the message from last Sunday night. There is a uh, worksheet in your bulletin this morning. I think the men probably have some extra ones of those. If you do not have one, if you'll raise your hand and wave it at them, they'll get it for you. And uh, I filled in the ones that we covered last week, the first part of that message. We'll review just a little bit, and then we want to talk about how to transform our fears. All of us have to deal with fears in our life from time to time. And uh, James begins his epistle with a new look at trials. As David read for us tonight in verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. As we go through the trials of life, we understand that the Lord uses them to develop us and mature us. And so he tells us, ask for wisdom. Ask God to give you wisdom. What am I going through? Why am I going through this? What are you doing in my life? And learn from those trials that we go through. The objective of the Christian life is that we might get to know God and the power of His resurrection. But that will not happen in our lives unless we also experience what Philippians 3.10 calls the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The Lord Jesus Christ is our supreme example of how the Christian life works and how we ought to live. And in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, he gives us the example, and it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. As you know, the next 40 days of his life were filled with fasting and temptation, a major trial that he was going through in his life. And in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, it says, And Jesus returned in power, in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. Before we can go in the power of God, and before we can have God's power in our life, we oftentimes have to go through suffering and trials and difficulties. Peter affirms the need for trials in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. God wants us to have that exceeding joy because we have His power in our lives and because we are successful as we live for Him and serve Him. The Apostle Paul explains in great detail how these trials result in the power of God being upon us in our lives. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, as David read for us just a few moments ago, Paul said, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. 
For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, notice this, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I go through the infirmities, the trials, the struggles, the difficulties of life, so that I can have the power of Christ on me. Therefore, verse 10, he says, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. We can glory, as Paul says, we can rejoice, as James says, when we understand what God's doing in our life. He's maturing us, He's developing us, He's preparing us, and he wants us to have his power in our life so that we can live for him and serve him. We experience the power of God's Spirit as we are filled with his Spirit. And he enables us then to pass the tests that we face in our life. A test is simply being obedient to the rhemas of God's Word in spite of the opposition from Satan. You see, the devil doesn't want us to do what God wants us to do. He really doesn't care what you do as long as it's not what God wants you to do. And so he will oppose. So how do we fight that? We fight that obviously with the Spirit of God within us, but also with the Word of God. We talked about that this morning. Satan fears the damage that God's ramas, His Word, will do to His kingdom. And He will attack and oppose and try to stop us from doing what God shows us in His Word. I talked this morning about getting those ramas, those verses of Scripture that give us direction for our life. Satan doesn't want us to do what God wants, and so he opposes those passages of Scripture. He'll try to block our understanding of the rhemas about God's rule and direction. He'll try to discourage us with opposition and ridicule from people and even sometimes from believers. And then he'll try to distract us with the daily concerns of life, even in making a living sometimes. So we talked about last week the first two tests that we go through and that we must pass in our life. The first test was to transfer the fear of rejection. Transform the fear of rejection. This first fear is a fear that comes all the way back from Adam. He feared rejection of God. When God came to the garden, he hid himself after he had sinned. And we inherited this fear from Adam. What is our natural response to that fear? Our normal response is to strive for the praise and approval of people rather than the praise and approval of God. We, we, fear, we fear people rejecting us, so we want man's approval. We promote our own name and reputation rather than the name and reputation of God. We compare our achievements to those that other, of other people rather than to God's work in our life. We feel envious towards those that appear to be better or more attractive than we are rather than being grateful for what God has given us. And then we talked about the lies upon which this fear is based. It's based on the lie that the approval of people is more important to my life than the approval of God. We know that's a lie, amen? The lie that my abilities and achievements are more significant than God's work in and through my weaknesses. 
and the lie that I can gain acceptance from people by lowering my moral standards. And then we looked at a number of verses of Scripture that help us to transform the fear of rejection. And you can go back and look over those passages of Scripture as you have time later on. The second test we talked about was to transform the fear of failure. We all struggle with that fear. We don't want to be a failure. We want to be a success. If we ask the average person today, do you want to be, su be successful in your life? Most everybody will say, yes, I want to be successful. The problem is most of us don't understand what real success is. We associate success with people that have a lot of money or people that have expensive possessions or people that have prominent friends or significant influence. And usually those people are associated with money and expensive possessions and those sorts of things and none of those are factors in true success. You see, true success in life is finding and knowing the will of God. And yet the fear of failure drives us into a futile pursuit of trying to grasp those things that we think will make us successful. What's our normal response, our natural response to this fear? The first one is demanding my will in things that I want rather than choosing God's will and the things that He wants. Secondly, reserving my, for myself the right to make final decisions rather than submitting to my God-ordained authority. Thirdly, having outbursts of anger when my will and rights are violated rather than yielding my will and rights to God. Number four, building my life around my life and my goals rather than around God and His kingdom. Number five, following foolish counsel, which results in failure rather than wise counsel from God and parents and others. This fear of failure is based on some lies that come to us from the devil. The first one is the lie that I'm old enough to make my own decisions and don't need the blessings of God or my parents. Huh. A lot of people get caught up in that lie. Lie number two is the lie that I can be the captain of my own ship and trust in my own intellectual abilities. And lie number three, the failures I experience are valuable in helping me to achieve success. In other words, it's okay if I mess up, that'll just help me the next time. Now, tonight we want to pick up with the third fear that we have to deal with. And that third fear is the fear of poverty. The fear of poverty. This fear is so pervasive that the Lord spent extra time to explain why that this actually should not torment us. He took extra time to tell us why we should not fear poverty. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter number 6 and verse number 26. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26. And notice what the Lord says there, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 26. He says, Behold the fowls of the air, the birds of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? God said, look at the birds. They don't plow the fields. They don't plant the crops. They don't gather into barns. And yet the heavenly Father takes care of them. And then he says, Are ye not much better than they? Verse 27, Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his statute? You can fret and worry about your 
height all you want to, and you can't make it any different. And why, verse 28, take ye thought for raiment? Why are you worried about the clothes you wear? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? The fear of poverty. Not going to have enough money, not going to have enough clothes, not going to have enough food. What's our normal response to that fear? First of all, we choose to make money the master of life rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. If we fear poverty, we'll do whatever it takes to get more money. And our decisions in life will be based on what helps me to make more money, not what's God's will for my life. And as you make the various decisions in your life, it's not always the dollar sign that makes the right choice, is it? It's what's God's will for my life. Our second response is building our thoughts and our ambitions around making money. We're constantly thinking and working on that rather than on how can we advance the kingdom of God. What can I do for God's glory? What can I do for His kingdom? We're thinking about what can I do to make more for me? Our third response is falling prey to get-rich-quick schemes and unwise investments rather than being good stewards. Boy, I wish I could tell you all the times I've talked to people who've gotten caught up in some kind of get-rich-quick scheme and lost a lot of money. Why do we get caught up in them? Because we're worried about the fear of poverty. And then the fourth one, and this is just as real, hoarding money for a better retirement rather than sowing money and meeting the needs of others. Hoarding money so that I can have a better retirement, so that I can have more instead of meeting the needs of others. We'll look at some verses in relation to those in a minute. Then there's some lies on which this fear is based. What are the lies, this fear of poverty? The first lie is the lie that we make money. We make money rather than it is God who gives us the power to get wealth. The idea that we make money. No, God's the one who gives us the power to make wealth. The second lie is the lie of believing that money we get belongs to us instead of being a trust from God. You see, we think, well, I tithe, so I've taken care of my responsibility. No, all of the money that you and I have is a trust from God. And it doesn't belong to me. I'm just the steward. I am the one that God's entrusted it to me. And I get to use it for Him and for His glory. The third lie is the lie that if I give money to God, I will have less for myself rather than acknowledging the law of harvest. If I give money to God, I'll have less than myself instead of acknowledging the law of harvest. What's the law of the harvest? The farmer, if he wants to get more crops, what's he have to do? Got to plant more seed, doesn't he? He has to sow more seed. We get the idea that if I, get, if I sow more seed, if I give away, I'm not going to have enough for me. The law of harvest is give and it shall be given. Sow and you'll reap. So what are the passages of Scripture that will help us to transform this fear? 
What verses does God give me that will help me with this? The first one I want you to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 17 and 18. Listen to what it says. It says, and thou say in thine heart, this is God speaking to us, and he said, we say in our heart, my power and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. If we believe that it is our ingenuity, our intelligence, our skills, our ability and labor, that produces wealth, we will conclude that the money that we get belongs to us and therefore I can spend it however I want. When we realize that our wealth is from the hand of Almighty God, we're able to understand that we are actually stewards of all that God has given to us. We must use it wisely in order to give back a greater return to the Lord that gave it to us. The alternative to stewardship is trying to serve two masters. The Lord said in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, He said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. You can't serve both. The choice here is this. Who do we want to control our life? Do we want God to control our life? Or do we want our material possessions to control our life? There is no middle ground. It's either one or the other. It's either God or material possessions. If we serve money, we'll look to ourselves and to our jobs as our source of money. We may accumulate some money, but then we'll look on helplessly as the Bible says, our riches make themselves wings and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. However, they never make it to heaven. That only happens if you give to God. Look at Matthew chapter 6 with me, if you will, again in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> and look at what he says in verse 19. We saw some later verses. He talked about the birds. We look at them, the flowers of the field. God cares for them. We're of much more value than them. You're familiar with these verses in verse 19. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor seal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In the family system of the Jewish nation, God required his people to bring their tithes and to bring their offerings. And if you study the Old Testament, you'll find they had different tithes. They had tithes for the temple. They had tithes for the poor. They had tithes for different things that they gave. In our present family of God, He wants us to think beyond just the tithe to sowing and reaping. You see, we sow and we reap, and the more generous we are in meeting the needs of others around us, the more money God will entrust us with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, he said, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. 
Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now here's how God's plan works for us today. Determine what your basic financial responsibilities are. And remove all unnecessary expenses. You know, most of us, and when we counsel people with finances, we, we have what we call their income, and then we have what we call found money. And the found money usually comes from unnecessary expenses. There are a lot of things that we spend money on that we could live without. But we remove the unnecessary expenses. We learn how to negotiate for larger purchases. We give and search and look for the best buys on smaller items. We declutter our homes and sell a lot of the things that are unused. You know, all of us have a lot of things sitting around that we haven't used for two or three or four years that we don't need. We can't live without them, and then we get them and use them for a little while, and they end up in the corner in the garage, and then we have a garage sale and get rid of them, don't we? <laughs> but when you do all of that, and then you come to a comfortable week, weekly amount, what, I, what God wants me to live on, how He wants me to live, and purpose that anything God gives to you unexpectedly above that amount will go into a special fund and you'll give it away as God directs you. That's the plan of sowing and reaping. Sowing bountifully. Look over, if you will, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at verses 8 and 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember, we're talking about how to overcome this fear of poverty. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8, 9, and 10, verse 8, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, I like this, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. God says he will see to it that we always have sufficiency in all things. Didn't say we'll have all we want. He said sufficient. All we need. Amen? Verse 9, as it is written, He hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. When God talks about us having all sufficiency, the next verse He says we learn to disperse abroad, to give to the poor. He's talking about giving to help the needs of others. And then verse 10, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower... Now, there is an application of that. One of the ways we give seed to the sowers, we pro provide the Word of God to missionaries. We provide the seed. The Bible says the seed is the Word of God. To those that minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. It really works. If we learn to do it God's way, we will not have to fear poverty. We'll know I'm doing what God said in my giving, and God in turn will make sure that I have what's sufficient for me to live on. And we'll get to delight in watching God work in our financial affairs so that you'll be able to do good to all men, the Bible says, especially to them of the household of faith. But if we reject God's plan, there's a big price to pay. Go over a few more pages to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look at verses 8 and 9 and 10 there. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
in verse number 8. And he says, And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich, notice he says, they that will be rich. He doesn't say they that are rich. Those that will be, those that will to be. They're striving to become rich. Fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in, dis in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. There's some consequence in doing things our way instead of God's way. In contrast to those verses in Proverbs 10 and verse 22, and I like this verse, Solomon said, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And then he adds this, and he addeth no sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord, he maketh rich. And God doesn't add sorrow with his blessings, does he? I think this week somebody won that big Powerball thing that was up over a billion dollars, wasn't it? If you read... Some of the stories of people who have won the lottery and gotten a million dollars or millions and millions and now it's up to billions of dollars. Read their life, you'll find out how many times their lives were wrecked by the money and ruined by it. The blessing of the money, ill-gotten money, has a curse with it. But God says, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. There's not a sorrow that comes when we do things God's way, and He blesses us. In verses 6 and 7 of that same chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what our, one of our biggest problems is? Contentment. Godliness, you say, God, we need to be godly. Yeah, we do, but we need to be content too. We wouldn't waste a lot of money if we were not discontent. TV commercials know exactly how to make us discontent. Huh. Got to have it. Got to have the next one. They, they line up for the next Apple phone that comes out. Huh. It's crazy, isn't it? Because we're not content with what we have now. And that's true in a lot of different areas. Godliness with contentment is great grain. For, with, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. When you were born in that hospital or home birth or wherever you were when you were born, you didn't bring anything with you. And when they put you in the casket, there may be a few things they can throw in there, but you're not taking anything with you beyond that casket. Not going with you. Content. God's reward for generosity is pictured by the man who's purchasing a sack of grain. And the rule is that whatever he could put in the sack belonged to him. So he heaps it up and piles it up and even takes his garment and wraps it around the sack to catch whatever runs over and spills out. And God explains that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. He says, Give and it shall be given unto you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, notice this, shall men give into your bosom. Why? For with the same measure that ye meet out or you give out, with all it shall be measured to you again. God says, 
in the same fashion, the same way that you give out to others to help others, God will give back to you. That's why he said, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. When William Borden arrived on the campus of Yale University as a freshman in 1905, the school was permeated with rationalism and religious skepticism. And when William Borden was a senior, 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale were meeting in Bible studies and prayer groups every week. In spite of opposition from the professors at Yale, William transformed the entire student body in a movement to seek after God. How did he do that? The answer was with the power of God's grace and genuine love that came as a result of William Borden giving away his fortune. You see, William Borden was born in Chicago into a family of great wealth. His father was an attorney that had some extensive real estate investments. And as a high school graduate, his dad gave to William a gift of a trip around the world. On that trip... William said he saw firsthand the needs of people all around the world. And when he got back, he dedicated his life to be a missionary, and he gave away the wealth that he would have inherited. When he entered Yale, he looked at the university as his first mission field. His first step was to meet with a fellow classmate before breakfast for prayer and Bible study every day. Soon another classmate joined them, and then another, and then another. And by the end of his freshman year, 150 freshmen were meeting every week for prayer and Bible study. William sought out what were considered to be the most incorrigible and unlikely students, and he witnessed to them and led them to Christ. Soon 300 were meeting together. And the names of the, those other students that weren't meeting were divided up among those 300 for prayer. Any student that was especially resistant they would give the name to William and he would pray for them and go talk to them. He would go out on the streets at nighttime and lead drunkards to Christ. He then he founded the Yale Hope Mission. He had a love for everyone and he expressed that by laying down his life for them and by giving large amounts of money away anonymously. His fellow classmates saw in him a strength and character and commitment that gave them strength and courage for their life. One of them stated he put backbone in the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was the stuff martyrs were made of. After graduation and divinity school, William turned down very high-paying jobs in order to head to the mission field of China. During a stop in Egypt to learn the language, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. They said the world was stunned by his death. You see, William Borden not only gave away his wealth, but he gave away himself. An amazing progress for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was made around the world because of the life and death of William Borden. Written in his Bible were three now famous statements. He gave away all of his wealth... And he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. 
He turned down a lot of jobs. He went to Egypt to learn the language on his way to China. And he wrote in his Bible, no retreat. After he contacted, contracted meningitis and was on his deathbed, he wrote two last words in his Bible. He wrote in there, no regrets. No regrets. You see, when we learn to give our life and when we give ourselves, and when we give of our finances for the glory of God, God takes away that fear of poverty. He takes care of us. There's a fourth test very quickly, and that is transfer the fear of death. The last fear that we struggle with is the fear of death. The very word death strikes fear in the hearts of many people. It holds them in emotional bondage that only the Lord Jesus Christ can break. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says that through death, He, Jesus, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I'm glad to say this morning, or tonight, Jesus conquered death. We don't have to fear death. Heaven's not such a bad alternative, is it? And we don't have to live in fear of death. There are at least four reasons Satan hates our body and wants to damage our body and wants to destroy it. First of all, it is made in the image of God. And Satan is at war with God. Our body is made in the image of God. Satan wants to destroy it. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I don't believe it's a good idea for Christians to cremate their body at death. It's made in the image of God. Satan hates that, so he wants to destroy anything that is a picture of the image of God. Secondly, it's a member of the body of Christ, and Satan tried to destroy Christ, so he wants to destroy our body. Thirdly, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives within you, and so Satan's an enemy of the Holy Spirit, so he wants to destroy our body. Number four, its various parts, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, are all potential weapons that can be used against Satan, and he does not want us to use our body against him and damage his kingdom, and so he hates our body and wants to destroy it. Now, what about our responses? How do we respond to this fear of death? There's several responses that we can have. The best response is we realize the seriousness of spending eternity in hell and we respond to the good news of Christ's death for our sin. You see, when we respond to the good news and trust Christ as our Savior, we don't have to fear death, do we? It's a serious thing to die without Jesus Christ. The second natural response is to search out man-made religions for a different answer about life after death. People who don't want to trust Christ try to find a different way. Thirdly, if that doesn't work, we deny the existence of God and any responsibility that we have to answer to Him in judgment. See, if there is no God, I can live as I please because I'm not going to be judged by God someday. And then there's the lies upon which this fear is based. The first lie that the devil gives to us is the lie that God is too loving to send people to hell. That's a lie from the devil. 
God is too loving. I mentioned in, I think it was in my Sunday school class this morning, sometimes people say, well, my God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And they're right. Because their God's not the God of the Bible, it's the God that they've made up in their own mind. The God of the Bible says if you reject His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one option for you, and that's eternity in hell forever and ever. Second lie is the lie that there is no life after death. You close your eyes in death, you're going to open them either in heaven or in hell for all of eternity. And the third lie is that since death is coming, then we ought to enjoy all the pleasures we can while we're still alive. The idea of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. Do whatever you want. Death's coming, so just live it up. That's a lie from the devil. Let me give you some verses and we'll be finished. What are the ramas that transform this fear? 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But the grace of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The first step in, de- in transforming the fear of death is to confirm the purpose for which God brought you into this world. What is the purpose that God brought you into this world? And when you find what the purpose is, then focus on that purpose, not on your death. Because you and I are indestructible until the work that God has for us to do is done. And so we focus on the work God has for us, not on our death. But when that work is finished, there's no further purpose for God to postpone the glories of heaven for us. The Apostle Paul purposed in his life to get the gospel to the Gentile world. That's what he lived for. That's what he worked for. He worked tirelessly to fulfill that purpose in his life. And the Lord gave him the strength to do that. In Philippians 1 verse 21, he said, For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to, to abide or to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. It almost sounds like Paul adjusted the time of his death in order to fulfill the purpose that God had for him. He said, it's better for me to go to heaven. I'd just soon go on. But you need me here. So that I can help you grow and mature and develop. And you know what? If you're still alive, I think most of you here tonight are. God's still got a purpose for you. And there's some people that still need you. Amen? Give your life to fulfill that purpose that God has for us. If you're told by a doctor that you only have a few weeks to live, What reason would you give to God to extend your life? What is God's purpose? What am I doing for the kingdom of God? Why do I need another year, another week, another month? What reason would you give to God? How many people are you witnessing to? How many people? Is there anybody you're discipling? You're helping them to mature and to grow. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 8. 
I got 1 Corinthians. Let me get over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. It says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The first message of this passage is that there is a joyful confidence when a believer dies. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We'll instantly be taken out of this world and taken into the presence of Almighty God. That's our purifying hope. Everyone that hath this hope, he says, purifieth himself. The second message is that we should continue our labors for the Lord, keep serving the Lord, keep living for Him until you meet Him. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming out to his followers and saying, folks, I just want to let you know I'm going to retire these last few years of my life and just kind of take it easy. No, that'd be kind of unthinkable for the Apostle Paul, wouldn't it? And it should be just as unthinkable for us. We may end a career job that we're going through, but we should then intensify our labors for the Lord and work for Him and serve Him until we meet Him. The third message of this passage of Scripture is that everything we do will be judged of God as good or bad when our life on earth comes to end. Therefore, we labor diligently for the Lord because... The night is coming when we won't be able to work anymore. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's very important for us to transform, transform that fear of death and stop thinking about our death and start thinking more about Christ's death and what He did for us. Jesus made it very clear to His disciples in Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 to 25. He said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for My sake, the same shall save it. You see, God wants us to understand what life really is all about. Our job is not to save our life and not die. Our life is to lose our life and live for God. Serve Him. Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him that endureth such contradiction, such hostility of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. We don't have to fear death. We can look to the Lord and what He did for us and give our lives to serve Him. During the 1700s, they said that riots and mobs and street violence were the scourge of England during that time. The government was incapable of dealing with the rule of the mob. Sounds sort of like some of our riots and so forth we've had in our country. However, historians credit one man with having an enormous influence to bring peace in England and Wales and also across colonial America. He was a five-foot, three-inch tall preacher whose life spanned most of the 18th century. 
He was born in 1703. He died in 1791. During his life, he crisscrossed England and Wales and the frontier of America. He traveled a quarter of a million miles by foot and horseback and carriage to bring God's message of peace to multitudes of people. His fearless preaching attracted crowds, but it also attracted mobs. Wherever he went, there were riots and various attempts to stop him and hinder his mission that he was on. He organized followers in small groups and trained lay preachers to ride circuits to meet with them and to give further instructions from the Scripture. His amazingly disciplined heart and mind and reins allowed him to bring every thought into captivity to the truth of the Word of God. You see, this was the secret of him conquering his fear. It was building the Word of God into his life. He preached, they said, an average of three to five times a day in different villages and towns. He cared for the sick. He visited the prisons. He organized schools. And in addition to all of his travels and to his 40,000 sermons, he wrote and published 180 books and pamphlets on a wide variety of subjects. His influence was not only felt throughout England and Wales, but also throughout colonial America, where thousands of people were reached for Christ. And over a hundred of the first colleges in America were established by his followers. During one riot in England, a huge leader of a mob came up to John Wesley and shouted, John, I'm going to kill you. The husky man that yelled at him, held a knife in one hand and a heavy club in the other. And John looked in his face with a loving smile, and the attacker just looked at him. And then suddenly he dropped one of his weapons, reached over, and stroked John Wesley's hair, and he said, my, what soft hair you have. And then he turned to the mob and shouted, don't you bother him, I'm his bodyguard. <laughs> On another evening, John was praying for a sick believer and a large mob surrounded the house that he was in praying and they screamed, bring out the minister. And John didn't go out, but he had somebody bring the mob leader in to him. In a few minutes, he said, the lion became a lamb. And then John asked him to go out and get one or two of his mob leaders out there, his most bitter opponents, and bring them in. And in two minutes, they too were as calm as he was. Then John spoke to the entire crowd with profound results. They shouted, the man is an honest gentleman, and we will spill our blood in his defense. You see, one of the driving motivations of John Wesley was an incident that took place when he was just a small boy. Church members were angry at his minister, minister follower, father, and they set his house on fire, and he barely escaped with his life. His mother said to him, John, God must have something very special for your life. You are a brand plucked from the burning. And that gave to John a sense of destiny. He had a purpose in life in which he fulfilled and preached the gospel. There's some testimony, there's some tests that we have to go through 
in order to be transformed and have God's power in our life. John Wesley went through that. The first test is to transform the fear of rejection. To transform the fear of failure. To transform the fear of poverty. And to transform the fear of death. The believer who overcomes these tests and these temptations and obeys God's ramas will produce great results for the kingdom of God and His glory. And in the process of doing that, will transform the fears that we have in our lives that come all the way back from Adam. And God delivers us from those fears so that we can fulfill His purpose in our life. Could I ask you in closing tonight, what is your fear that is keeping you from fulfilling God's purpose for your life? What is the devil using to try to stop you? And as you seek for God's power and God's strength and God's victory, remember that oftentimes he takes us through the trial like he did the Apostle Paul who said, I prayed for this thorn to be removed three times and God didn't remove it. God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul said, in my weakness... I am made strong. As we go through the tests and trials, don't grumble, don't complain. Ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? If any man, after James talked about the trials, he said, if any man lack wisdom, let him what? Ask of God. Who giveth liberally to all men and upbraideth not? Say, so what does that mean, upbraideth not? It means he doesn't scold us. And he doesn't find fault with us. You know why sometimes we don't pray for fear or for wisdom? We say, well, boy, I don't deserve it. Join the crowd. None of us do. God says, you ask for it, and I'm not going to scold you, and I'm not going to try to find fault in you. I want to give liberally to all men. Ask him for wisdom as you go through the trials in your life, and ask him to give you grace and power to fulfill his purpose in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Would you help us to overcome the fears in our life and help us to see your power? Would you use us to fulfill your purpose and to know that we're indestructible as long as we're doing your will? And then when we've completed that, there's nothing to hold us here. There's, nothing, there's no reason to withhold the glories of heaven. And we'll get to step out of this life into eternity and enjoy the pleasures and joys and beauty of heaven for all of eternity. Most of all, the presence of our God. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us victory. And give us your power in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.